people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. It's all sex and violins, front and center. Also back in the booth is Mr. Robert Bellissimo. Hello, everyone. Bonjour and hola for the French and Spanish fans. We conclude French Month with Louis Bunuel's 1930 film, L'Age d'Or. Released in the wake of the sound revolution, the film straddles the line between silence and sound, presenting a series of stories that represent the five prismatic segments of a scorpion's tail. We will be spoiling each of these as we go along, so if you haven't seen Lajor, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Rob, when did you first see the movie, and what did you think, sir? My entry into Bunuel was probably Discreet Charm, and as I said on the Discreet Charm episode, and I've talked about Bunuel before, when I first saw his I didn't understand it. It was in my late teens. It didn't connect with me at all. When I went back a few years later and we rewatched it and then became obviously one of my favorite films of all time, if not the number one, it then led me down the path to try and watch everything that I could get my hands on. Working at Thomas Video was good because I could get VHS at the time, which was mostly what you had to get. So I think I may have seen this originally on a VHS tape, it wasn't a very good dub. I think subtitles were garbage. Drags it parts, and I don't think that I really appreciated it the first time I saw it because I was expecting something more in line with the later work. Not that his stuff is narratively heavy at times, but at least had something that felt more together. Shenandelu has these images that stick in your head. There's some in here that stick in your head for different reasons. Like I said, I just thought it was okay. It was only in later years that I went back and looked at it and said, Shen Andalou gives you sort of visual hints the later work. This gives you a lot of thematic. This is a proto version. This is Stooges to punk rock or something. It's, yeah, go listen to that stuff, and then you can understand where it comes from. So it's only grown in years, but I, it's not one that I watch on the regular. It's one I probably see maybe once every five years or more. And Robert, how about yourself? I'm n- new with Bunuel. Part of the appeal for doing this episode on your show, Mike, was just because he's a director I've been meaning to get to. And I just, I've, I've seen Belle de Jour and Tristan. I had seen The Milky Way, but he's just someone I hadn't gotten to yet. And so you don't have to know much about Bunuel to know what he was interested in his films, which are making fun of the bourgeois 
sexual fetishes and tearing the <laughs> religious Catholic church apart. And so you certainly see that in in this film, but I knew it was going to be tough watch. I just had an instinct, so I thought, I'm going to have to watch this a few times. So my what you do with any really, with any great artist, you go back time and time again. But I, when I first saw it, just maybe a month ago or so, my initial feeling was, that is, this is fucking crazy, but in a good way. And I just immediately took to it. I just let it hit me. And I could clearly see those themes we mentioned it, mentioned and what he was getting at. And when I watched it again about a week ago, I was able to then appreciate it much more. And it's a film that I, I feel invites you to participate in having your own takes and opinions and possibilities. And those things may change with each viewing. But it's a challenging watch, but at the same time is very funny and he just his audacity and boldness and just not caring what anyone thinks or worried about anyone criticizing him that's ultimately from what i read him and dali wanted they wants to shock people wants to wake people up once they showed up at the movie theaters with rocks in their pockets just because they thought that was for their short film there might be some protests so Let's make sure we're armed. But I don't know. I just took to it. I just really loved it. I just really felt I could feel what he was getting to. And I know some people hate things that don't make sense on a narrative level. But if you're trying to make sense out of this in some kind of traditional story, you're going to be lost. You're going to hate it. You can't watch it that way. But I don't know. I just loved it. So I'm looking forward to just really diving in with the two of you to see really what we think of what's going on here. Now, I can't remember if I said this during our Discreet Charm episode or not, but the first Bunuel film that I watched was Lunshen Andalou, and I watched it, this interesting colorized version that they had for MTV. It would show it as like a break, which was weird because... The movie's 20-some minutes long, and then I saw the original, and I was like, this is pretty much the movie that I saw. But my first exposure to him was seeing this and not really knowing what I was looking at. And I was starting off with the, the cloud across the moon and the eyeball getting sliced. That was all right there on MTV for me to enjoy throughout the years. And occasionally there would be a, a shot where it was somebody looking at the camera, and then the background would blow out in this animation thing. So it was was actually very well done the way that they did this and then the constant music going through the entire thing so that was my first exposure to Moonwell, even not really connecting that this was a director of many things and that something i needed to look out for probably 91 i was in david's books up in ann arbor and i found a look at the script of lodge d'or and I remember reading on the back how it talked about this movie caused riots. And I was just like, how could a movie cause riots? I just didn't understand. That was my first idea, my first concept that a movie could have that much power that it would cause riots. I still didn't watch the movie. It took until 2019 when I went to the Nitrate Film Festival out in Rochester, where they actually showed a nitrate print of Lodge d'Or. And they didn't have, it was the original French, so they didn't have subtitles burned onto it, and they didn't do overtitles or anything. 
was actually one of the organizers of the festival, our friend Jared Case, who's been on the show several times. Him with a microphone reading the translation as we're going through. So like the title cards, the the dialogue, any of that, he's up there reading this as the movie's going along. Very unique experience for me. And seeing this beautiful print from can't remember if it was from the actual cinematic or where it was from, but it was gorgeous to see. And as soon as I saw it, I was just like, I have to do an episode on this. So that it's been in the backlog for a while as far as okay, yeah, we're gonna get to this. And then when I was like putting together this year and there are all these French films, I'm like, okay, cool, finally gonna do Lage d'Or. This'll be great. And yeah, revisiting this, it's of course it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what I love about it. And then like you were saying, Rob, this is that almost like a Rosetta Stone as far as translating these obsessions and things from the early days all the way up until his later films. It's funny because last week we talked about rules of the game and there's Gaston Mado in there as the games keeper. I forgot that he was also in Children of Paradise, which we talked about two weeks ago. So he's shot through this entire month pretty much. So him as the man back in this 1930 film, because there are no real character names. So it's basically like your roles. He's terrific. And just, he makes me want to see more films with him in it because he's just wonderful, especially how angry he gets through this whole thing. And especially when he kicks that dog, it's probably one of my favorite things. That was the thing I put in my notes. I go, yeah, I'm sure PETA loves this film. Oh God. <laughs> Between the dog and the scorpions and the rat and the cow. The blind like, man. No. They don't care if humans get hurt. It's just the animals. <laughs> he has such a great look. He looks like a football player, like an athlete or a hockey player. You just don't see those kinds of faces anymore. He's really compelling. This and rules of the game. I'm going to have to seek out more of his films, performances. Yeah, I forgot he's in Pepe the Moco, which I've been wanting to do a rewatch of that. So yeah, I'm probably going to be having a guest on Mado Film Festival over here at some point. But he doesn't even show up in the movie until we have two of these sequences where we've got this nature documentary about scorpions and talking about scorpions. And of course, it's one of those, even though I was saying jokingly, this movie doesn't make sense. There are reasons for all of this. I feel like there are reasons for every single thing that we see on screen. And so starting it off with the scorpions, I'm just like, okay, what do scorpions represent? And is it Scorpio? Are we talking about this? Are we talking about, yeah, just what are we thinking about these scorpions and this nature documentary all about scorpions? And how do we see that playing through the rest of this film? Other than the idea of the five segments of the tail with the venom sack. We've got a very venomous ending to this film. <laughs> the whole thing with scorpions to me plays into if when you learn about Buñuel's biography, he was a I may say word versus bug. So an entomologist, people who study bugs. So he had an obsession with bugs. It, like I think if he hadn't become a filmmaker, he probably would have became a scientist that studied bugs because there's like a lot in his biography where he talks about collecting samples and collecting bugs, and so he. So I think there's some of that, but I would also say that kind of delicateness with the venom, it could stand in for humanity in some way that it's like, he's saying, look at this thing. It can be very destructive. A lot of the things that run through the film is this question of appearances and how do we make appearances within society and what society expects of us and 
how far will society go to force us into these positions? The most obvious being, the most over the top being the literal sex on the beach. So <laughs> we could talk about that a bit. Like I say, the first time when you see it, you're like, okay, nature documentary. And then it's never brought up again. So you have to think of what is it signifying? We're no different than these scorpions who can be destructive. He sh shows the he's swallowing up a rat. I love that he shows one of them go and that doesn't like this. They don't like the sun. They like to be isolated and they like to be alone. And then one of them goes under a rock and the other one is trying to follow. And you see it just obviously was getting pushed aggressively kicked back. I didn't get a chance to read all of that BFI book that you shared, Mike, but the writer mentioned, I don't know how obvious it is, but two of the scorpions look like they're having sex and one of them just rams through them, which of course we see time and time again in this film. So he could be, I think he's saying a combination of this, be, we are basically, we are animals, but we still have this kind of behaviors and people hate to think, oh, how can you compare a human to the behavior of an animal? But I think what he's saying is, no, we do behave in this ferocious manner that scorpions do. Or perhaps it's a warning in the sense that if you keep oppressing people, they're going, we're going to go back to the Neanderthal times and start to, it's just going to be total destruction. So I, I really saw it as a simple metaphor, what he was getting at there. The other aspect that I was thinking of that you brought up there, Robert, is the surrealists were about trying to make friends with or accept that which was within us and the passions that we have and as, as human animal. And so I can see that reading as well, where it's fine by itself. It's only when the outside world comes in and starts playing with it that it's going to attack. So it's if you allow the creature to live as it is, to be in its natural state, it's fine. It's just don't hit it in that way. And which brings me to, I actually learned to read. So if anyone, amazing, uh, almost three years of college will do for you in the past three years during COVID. This is an ongoing joke for those who haven't listened to my previous appearances on the show. Mike would always read the books. I didn't ever have time to read the books. So I notoriously slow reader. I want to thank Al Goro, who said to me many years ago. This is a book from the late 70s, uh, Virginia Higginbottom. And I think that to me, when I read analysis here, she said that basically a Chen Andalou was a personal vision of erotic obsession and anxiety. Bolajdor went on to indict social institutions and beliefs that repress the individual's spontaneity. That's the difference between the those two early films and how one builds on the other. And I think this is maybe to the point, even in those early frames, talking about those scorpions pressing the spontaneity. Yeah. From what I've read, scorpions are symbols of protection, transformation, independence, solitude, and intelligence. But they're also the symbol of death and rebirth, a symbol of power, and also lust, sex, and fertility. In the commentary, the commentator talks about how scorpions are more the symbol of genitals and the anus. And I'm just like, okay, that's got Dolly written all over them, which is wonderful. Dolly didn't really have that much to do with this one, according to what you read. Sometimes people say, yes, he had a ton to do with this. And other times, no, he didn't. There's this whole falling out between Bunuel and Dolly at some point, And I guess he didn't like Gala. 
Bunuel didn't like Gala at all and was just like, get this lady out of here. I want nothing to do with you. Maybe just a little jealous. I don't know, but it's not as in your face with some of the Ali stuff, even though when we move on to the next segment, we've got all of these, consider them bandits, I suppose. There's this whole crutch thing. There's at least one that has a crutch. And I'm just like, okay, because you see those like crutches inside of Dali's paintings a lot, like holding up different things. So I was seeing that as being a Dali touch to that. But yeah, with these scorpions, yeah, I definitely agree. The whole idea of the coitus interruptus trying to push the other scorpion out of the way, very pushy with this stuff and embracing that animal nature and seeing the rest of the people in this movie as scorpions and just some of the behavior, I would say, is what I'm getting from this early segment. And I like how poorly framed this nature documentary is quite a few times. There's like a lot of times where you can barely see the scorpions. They're down at the bottom of the frame. And then you get this like very dry, not necessarily David Attenborough, but these intertitles in here. And I like that the last intertitle that you see is, what's it say? It says, some hours later. And that takes us to the next section of the film. And that totally reminds me of Shen Andalou and just all of those time transitions. Last week on Sunday, in the spring, just all of those different transitions that he has. And he does that a few times in this one as well, where you're just like, wait, how much time has passed? Because we we move on to that next section where it's all taking place at the shore. You have one of the bandits coming across this group of, I guess they're bishops, these religious figures, and they're all chanting on the soundtrack and he leaves. And then in the subsequent sequence, we see them and they're all skeletons. And you're just like, wait, how much time has passed here? <laughs> and we see the cornerstone for Rome being laid down. And then we cut to quote unquote imperial Rome and it's basically the modern city. So I'm like, what? can't really trust to time in this at all <laughs> i think he's it's partly a joke and then partly just to say here were these beggars and we see these few religious people people begin to come and then they clearly took over the land and then we see these boatloads of bourgeois and uh, the religious figures coming and finding the bones there so I think ultimately what he, that is really what he wants you to take from it. So I think the time thing was just a way to mess with you. Even in the short film, it's 16 years earlier. And then it's no one looks any different. <laughs> this is what happened. And slowly it built up to Rome. And slowly it came these boatloads of people taking over. I guess that's what he was getting at with the time. That was the thing that I liked in some of the readings was talking about how the censors originally just thought it was a big joke. They couldn't understand why anyone was of that kind of ridiculousness that you're talking about. Yeah, that whole thing with this group of beggars, bandits, hunters, I'm calling them bandits because they look like beggars. They all have guns. So I'm like, okay, maybe they're out robbing people or maybe they're just hunting. I don't know, but they are all holed they up. They look like they're starving too. They're like on, on, their, on their deathbed. <laughs> so... Yeah, they're terrible hunters. <laughs> yes, they don't have a lot to choose from in this very desolate shore shoreline that they're on. Maybe they're members of PETA, like I said. Though. They seem to be accepting their feats because they're like, oh, we know it's over for us, but we're going to go anyway. So it was almost like they were going to fight it out. 
And then I don't know if you guys saw, I could have swore that when the boatload of people came and they found their bones, you see the hats of the religious figures. I could have swore one of the hats that the beggar who found the bodies, he just like this big farmer's hat. So I don't know if, if he's getting at that there was some fight that broke out and that, and they all died right there together. But I don't know if you guys picked up on that. It looked to me like what the hat, that guy's hat was with all of those bishops there. There's so much detail and times that it's, you have to watch it several times to get certain things. And if you have like attention problems, you may have to rewind it, watch the scene again, to figure out what the hell you just saw. Because you move from one segment to another a lot of times without any warning. It's just, okay, we're off to this new thing. Yeah, we're bored. Time to move on to the next thing. Which I think is why it's so important. I won't say his name. A fellow movie YouTuber that I know, he reviewed it and hated it because it doesn't make sense. And I'm like, again, do your dreams make sense? I don't know about you guys, but I have vivid dreams and they make no sense. And you could take something from it. But I think it's much more valuable to just look at what do the people do and what does that say about the story? What is actually, forget about traditional narrative. I don't understand why people get so hung up on that. There was a great meme. I think it was like just two or three images of Godard. And I don't know if this was from an actual interview that was translated or not. I can't say where it was. But it was something like Godard saying, if you're married and you don't like the same movies, you're bound to get divorced. So talking about my ex-wife, I was a Bunuel fan, and she was like, I have enough ambiguity in my life. I don't want it in my art. So this was a lady like to watch, and no offense to anyone who enjoys it, just marathons of like cold case files and homicide life on the streets and law and order. So she wanted very oh, structured work. She couldn't get her head into it. She was just like, no, I can't. She's like, I don't mind watching a foreign film. Jesus, don't make me watch another Bunuel film. You could tell that our relationship hit the end at that point. Robert, you mentioned that BFI book, the Paul Hammond one. And I have to say, I haven't been doing a lot of drugs lately, but my God, I felt like I was high when I was reading his book. I was just having such a hard time understanding what he was saying a lot of times because he would flip from talk about the movie and then he would flip to the making of the movie and then go back into the movie. And there was no real, again, talking about transitions, there was no transition between, I'm like, oh, now we're talking about the movie again. Okay. Now we're talking about the making of again. All right. But it just all flowed from one to the other. And there were so many parentheticals where I was just like, what are you doing here? What are you trying to talk about here? I was so confused. He, so he wrote it like a Bunuel film, maybe. I think that's what you were going to say, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I go, so it appears the book structure just inspired by the film. <laughs> yeah. <say>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are all, I don't know if you've read a lot of those BFI, but I find them all a little hard to read. They're not easy to read. I've read some good ones, but they're extremely intellectual. I've gone back and reread passages, got my dictionary handy. They're definitely very dense, but I've read some good ones. But yeah, they're, that this one in particular was very challenging. The one thing I liked that he did was he would go through some of the actors and talk about who they were. Like I, I recognize Max Ernst as the bandit leader inside of the uh, the little hunting lodge hideaway type thing that he's doing and i think he's the one that has the first line of the film where he just yells at the rest of them to stop it that's cool but then hammond would go through a lot of the other 
actors in the film and tell you, oh, it was this person was this and this person was that, and give you like a little bit of a biography of each surrealist that was showing up in the film, which I thought was pretty cool. But then again, I'm just like trying to make sense of it. We're already talking about a movie that doesn't hold together a lot narratively, but then the book itself has that weird structure where I'm just like, what the hell's happening? So I'm glad that I wasn't the only one that was a little confused by that one to the point where I was looking for reviews to be like, is it just me? Am I just being dumb or what's happening? So Ruth's partly why I put it down. I'm like, I'm just going to go watch it again and read other things on it. There's spoken dialogue in this. Kind of reminds me of Hitchcock. Like Hitchcock's first sound silent film was Blackmail, where he shot it silently and then he went back and he added sound bits to it. You already have him using like subjective sound. So when the murderess hears somebody talking about a knife, like she doesn't hear the rest of the conversation. She just hears the word knife over and over again as after she had stabbed this artist. And in this one, here we are. It's a few years after the sound revolution is starting, but we've got straight dialogue, people just talking. Okay. You've got unsourced sounds. So you have things that are on the soundtrack where you're just like, I'm not exactly sure where that's coming from. You have sound effects. Like when you see those bishops the first time, you hear them chanting, but you can't really make out what they're saying necessarily. You've got thought conversations later on in the film where people are just thinking things and we're supposed to think that the other person can almost hear them. And then you even have, at one point, there's a telephone conversation and it just sounds like cartoon voices and they are not matched up to mouths whatsoever. And it just is, what am I seeing? But I love that he's playing with sound so much in his first sound film that he's just doing all of these different things with it. And that was... The first time when I watched this movie in Rochester, I was just like, am I supposed to be hearing something? Was this added later on? You know, what what was the life cycle of this movie? Was it all silent at first, but then they added sound? It's really tough to tell, but I think that he was just like, okay, I've got this new tool. I'm just going to mess around with it as much as possible. The thing that's interesting here about that use of sound is when you think about the fact that it's not only his first sound film, but it's my understanding. It's like one of the first sound films out of France. And at the same time, also consider the use of sound experimentation outside of the, of a theater context. There really wasn't a lot because radio had only started less than 10 years before. And a lot of that was just live music and live read. So you didn't have a ton of special sound effects and different things like that. They were just starting to get into those kind of radio play dramas and things like that would come later into the 30s. When we watch it now as a modern audience, if we don't understand that historically, I guess it's the same as watching, I don't know, maybe like Passion Joan of Arc and going, oh, they deal close-ups. But you have to understand it in context of the time as opposed to now where it's shit, close-ups all day long, like TikTok, so what? So it's one of those things where you have to have a historical understanding in order to get something. It's funny because I I didn't find these, nothing in the sound was throwing me unless it Maybe I've seen enough old, older films that it doesn't necessarily pop out as being unusual. I did the fact that he was using very, like, music was very happy, which, which I love, which was such an interesting, that Hitchcock that sometimes as well. Sometimes his music was very direct, but the image didn't necessarily always match 
the uh, the music he was using. But again, is that to mess with people? Is that a joke? Is that to make it feel like these things could happen to you? And so, you know, we're used to seeing this happy music on films, so it brings you a little more into it as opposed to being something from a distance or out of a horror film. On YouTube, someone remixed the sound of it, like uploaded. I On my second viewing, I was like, I don't remember these sounds. And it, the whole time it's someone coughing and moaning. Was, and I was like, this is really interesting. I, was like, I don't even remember this. And then I, and then in the comments, I was like, I don't think this is it. And then in the comments, someone said, who the hell remixed? You can find it on YouTube. It's bizarre, but it's really good like i would not recommend anyone do that to anyone touch anyone's movies but in this case it was bizarre it was really unique this is a couple of things in there as someone who worked in radio for a long time that i'm just like this stuff is not like sound effects were not trying to be seamless in a way they were not trying to be naturalist but they were not mixed at a particular level in order to make them seem normal quote unquote to to bring you into a realism they were a lot of them were heightened a lot of them were you could tell that they were not from that scene they were from somewhere else and that way the use of the music as you were saying could be early form of musical commentary like we often think about Kenneth Anger or Martin Scorsese using ironic music I can't think of Anyone who was doing ironic music in 1930 film, I should say, that was that would take another 30 years. But there's all that in there, and I think that's a really interesting thing. Like we say, for an early sound show, I did find her scream, and they were having sex on the on the beach there. At first, I thought, oh, someone's screaming. Like it sounded like someone was being hit or killed. And then I'm like, are they? I'm like, is he raping her? Like, are they having sex? Is, I'm like, is he hitting her? I don't know if that was intentional because it's not like an obvious sex sound. It sounds, or maybe that's because of the oppression that it's just it's like coming out in screams and pleasure at the same time. That to me was a little jarring. When you think about one of the big influences, and this is later in the film, that influence really shows up, was Marquitasat. So the idea of on, on the surrealists, they discovered they saw it and just thought he was great and a kind of liberator type so when you're talking about okay well, maybe there's like this violent screaming sexuality that might not be too far removed from that idea within the surrealists in that period one thing that i picked up on the first time i watched this and was i thought it was in there a lot more but it's only a few mentions but they're in enough sections that i thought it was interesting is the bandits at one point, they say the Majorcans are here. And then we've got references to Majorca throughout a lot of this movie. And that was one thing that I was glad that Hammond talked about was this, what, treaty that was signed in Majorca. And that's maybe this is commentary on that. Because Majorca, I mean, it's just this tiny little island out there in the right off the coast of Spain. Well, probably not right off the coast, but off the coast of Spain. And yeah, there's Majorcans come throughout this whole movie there are little references to majorca because apparently all of these people that are arriving on the shore are all from majorca and there's a lot of them like you said they do feel like very much an invading force and they all feel very bourgeois and that's where we get introduced to gaston Mado and leah liss is the woman's name i believe 
all of these people are walking across the, these kind of barren landscapes by the shore, see the bishops, their skeletons, they give them a salute and off they go. I guess they're there to dedicate this kind of cornerstone to ancient It's world. our land now. And that's where we meet the man and the woman and them in the mud having sex. And you mentioned that screen that we have that even presages us seeing them. People around them having to pull them apart and take them away. She gets taken away first. He's there in the mud. And then they finally get him up and these two men just march him off. And then really for a long time, this movie is cutting back and forth between her and what she's doing, kind of fantasizing about him and then him being marched by these guys. And yeah, he sees this dog and this dog is just bothers him. And the way that he like breaks away from the men to go up and kick this dog. Oh, and he breaks away later to smash a bug and he breaks away again and he kicks a blind man. He's just this font of rage. Yes, that's the point. Meet cute, I guess, because the rest of the film is really a romantic comedy. They want to get back together. So it's like, how did we meet? We were fucking on the beach in front of everyone and we got really dirty and then people came and said, no, you can't do that. So trying to get together ever since. There's one thing you didn't mention is the toilet scene. And I was thinking about this and granted, we don't actually see it flush, but we hear it. So I remember thinking like, everyone's like, oh, Psycho showed a toilet flush of the invasion. So I'm like, maybe Boonwell was 30 years ahead of that. You, you hear the toilet flush and he's cutting to, it looks either like mud or shit just spiraling down. And I saw that as the inner life of how they were both feeling. It's like, are, you're just making our life shit and crap and flushing it <laughs> right down the toilet. And what I like about the fact that Again, how he's playing with time is it's okay. So the Bajorkins came, it took over, and then we see this couple there having sex on the beach, and it's just like this feeling of this is this happened right away. Right away, they they started to tell people what to do, how to control people. He's just he doesn't gradually work its way up to it. It's like it's happening right now, and it doesn't even feel like they just met there. It just feels like they've. They've been together for years, and I think that's why he had this rage of not being allowed to have sex with this woman. And so kicking the dog, kicking the blind man, squashing the beetle, this has been happening for forever. And I think that's why it goes all the way back to the Majorkins and the ancient Rome, and he's making you feel like this isn't just a, a few scenes of a month or a week. This is years and years of oppression. And what I also really, I didn't really spot it until my, this third time I saw it was the other people that he cuts to gives you the impression that it's not just this couple, it's everybody. Like the one guy, he comes out of like a cafe or a bar and he also has like mud or dust all over his jacket. And then they follow him and he's kicking the violin. And I'm thinking, yeah, so I took that as, okay, so it's not just this couple for whatever reason. It's everybody down to that conductor at the end who suddenly stops and he's got this throbbing headache. Again, I think he's saying this is what oppression does. It's like people can't get on with their lives. It's like with the what you said, Rob, with the scorpions, if you stop them from their natural state of being and spontaneity, they're gonna they're gonna bite, they're gonna they're gonna get aggressive. 
they're not going to be able to do what they need, what they want to do. And down to that conductor at the end with that throbbing headache. I really like that. I really like that he doesn't just make it all about these two people. It's like everybody, everybody's experiencing this. That's also part of it is that when people watch this, if they're used to conventional narrative, they may go, okay, who is he and who is she and what are their names and what is their backstory? And it's, no, they're just man and woman. They're just humanity. They're not characters. They're symbolic ideas of a larger issue. I love how we have different views of the uh, toilet scene in certain ways, because I thought that was lava. So there was part of me that thinks, oh, this is lava. This is passion inside that's being washed down or submerged. We have to submerge these things. We have to hide these things. We have to get rid of these things. These things that the outside world says are filthy or dirty. We have to hide them and be clean and respectful. Yeah, I thought that was also lava or mud flow or something. Yeah, and it almost seemed like it was reversed out the way that the footage was being shown. I think there might have been another reverse shot as far as that goes, but like where you see the negative image. And I forgot that they are there to not only that cornerstone, but it's also it's a dedication to the Majorcans who died there in 1930, which is the year that this movie is coming out. And also while the man is being marched through the city. It feels like they're going to take him to jail or something. He sees a man with a placard and there's a set of legs on there. So of course he's thinking of his girlfriend, thinking of the woman and just thinking of her legs. But there's also another moment where we have this picture of a hand and then he imagines the hand becoming her hand and this, we're going to talk about wigs and hair and stuff, but we have this kind of mound of hair also in that image. And it's so completely a masturbation image. It's Yeah, not, oh, for sure. Undeniable. <laughs> even when we see that placard with the legs, it's more like the crotch than the legs is what I'm seeing when it comes to that. And we're going to get her crotch much later on in, in this film as well. He's just so obsessed with her sex. I think it would be very easy for a filmmaker to have male masturbation, but for it to be female masturbation with the way the fingers are and they're moving, like in 1930, it's like people were really uptight about talking about men, let alone how a woman would. There's your Dali reference, because when you read anything about Dali, he was guilt-ridden, constantly shame and guilt-ridden over the amount of masturbation, <laughs> and it, it comes out in his art. Like, it's all over the place in his work. So I've like, okay, that's definitely a Dali influence, all the masturbatory stuff. She's planning this party that we see later at this chateau. <laughs> if you notice, I didn't spot this till the third time, but she has a bandage on her finger. And I think it's her sister. I think that was her sister. And who says, oh, how's your... I think she asks, like, oh, the you know, your finger or whatever. She's like, oh, yeah, it's been like this for a week or so. And I was like, okay, if he has her finger bandaged, there's got to be a reason. So I took that as this: she's been masturbating. He's been forced to mass only masturbated. She's been masturbating so much that she injured herself. <laughs> I was like, that must have been what he was getting at. I just thought that is hilarious. That's one other thing that I liked about that Hammond book was that he could translate the French and also talk about how words in French have different meanings. Those French have a different word for everything, but just like the word bandaged. Also, 
refers to like sexual stuff. So when her mother says bandaged, she just asks that rather than says anything else, just that one word. And, you know, oh, yes, it's been sore for weeks as the woman bandage has this different context over there. And there's a few other times where he would point out things that would have double, sometimes triple entendres and almost always related to sex. So it's us having different quote-unquote code words for sex as we talk about things and the French are the same when it comes to this word could also mean this and this one could mean this you know a Cleveland steamer could be a hot dog or it could be something completely different (laughs) it was also interesting there because you don't even have to think about this too much but in terms of the time we talked about okay cutting back and forth between time and messing with us but the guy gets hauled off of her and arrested and she you assume goes home it seems as if more time has passed with her she's in different wardrobe she's planning this party again the bandage whereas with him it's like the next shot is what we just saw so it's for him it's like the next half an hour it seems like for her it's like the next week at least so why he did that i don't know but i like it again it's surrealist nature of it all but this thing with time, I, I want to go see it again just to see if there was be something I'm missing about that. There's the one inner title that says sometimes on Sundays, and then we have this looks like a tidal wave or something. All these buildings are collapsing, and they show that a few times, and it's just okay. Sometimes on Sundays this happens. Sundays, which of course when people go to church, which I must have been intentional. It's like destruction of the society, knock down some buildings. Why not? Once they pull him off the beach, I always got this feeling that they were like going to take him to jail or something. Because there's the two guys, he's handcuffed, he's walking between them. And he never ends up there. He ends up actually freed of them. So there's part of me that goes, maybe it's just the idea that he's saying there is that we hold each other together. Like we've, in a way, kind of force each other into this position where we're trying to get these needs met we're interested in these other things that we were talking about he has these images of the posters coming to life and things like that it's like, that's where we go if we weren't held in literal bondage in handcuffs by those who are around us well and that amazing thing that he's doing again with sound like at one point the woman goes into her bedroom and there's a cow on the bed and the cow gets off and you don't see the cow anymore, but you hear the cowbell. But then you cut back to the man and you hear the cowbell over the soundtrack. Or he's there walking and there's a barking dog, which probably makes him very angry because he'd probably want to kick that dog. And then you cut back to her and you hear the dog on her soundtrack. Or then it's very windy where he's at. And then you cut back to her and her hair is blowing in the breeze as if she is experiencing the same wind. It's like they are so tied together that they even experience the same sounds from one to another. It's almost like this huge psychic connection that they have. Those sound elements didn't pop out to me as much. Clearly they did because I was thinking about that as well. Why are we hearing these sounds she can only hear and then he can hear what you mentioned with the cowbells? How can he suddenly be hearing that if we're cutting back to him? But that's how I took it. It's like, they are they are one almost. They're thinking the same thoughts. They're they know what each other are thinking or what each other is, is what they're both experiencing at the same time. So just interesting because it feels like he's not even separating them. 
in a sense, even though people are trying to separate them. It's like they have this spiritual connection. So yeah, that's is is really interesting how he did that with the sounds, the use of sound. Yeah. And then we have a flashback because suddenly, I don't know where, I don't know why the man hasn't done this before, but he's just, hey, wait a second. And he hands them these papers, and then we have a flashback to when he got the papers. The International Goodwill Delegate has given him their decree that he's on now on a goodwill mission. And so great, because the guys are reading this, and the man just basically just walks away from them, breaks away, just like, hey, I'm on a goodwill mission, leaves his papers with them. He goes over, there's a taxi that's pulling up, there's a blind man who's, I guess, maybe waiting for the taxi or whatever, but he goes over and he has to kick the blind man before he can send him the taxi. This guy's goodwill mission isn't working out so well. Yeah, that was the great irony. And what I liked was, like, it seemed, maybe he's saying something about politics there, too. It's like how privileged they are. It's like, they're arresting this guy for what he did, but because it seemed as if he had some kind of political position. Oh, it's like, you're Work for the government? Yeah, no problem. You can you could be corrupt. You can abuse your power. No worries. <laughs> I was thinking of it, and maybe this is just because, as I was saying, I've been in school too long during COVID, that there's a certain amount of respectability that comes with having degrees or education within the society. So I saw it as he must have passed something. He was given this honor. So therefore, he is of higher status than just an average person. And therefore, he can get away with certain. He's allowed to have a certain amount of freedom within the context of the box that they've given him, which includes being able to basically hate on the people who are lower than him, which obviously a blind man would be because he's, of course, he's a blind man. So why not kick the blind man? Why not kick the dog? Why not you know, be shitty to the people that have it worse than you? That's acceptable. There's a, there's actually a docu there's a documentary on YouTube on Boudoir, and he's his personality shines in his movies. Certainly, if you anyone who's watched him in interviews, he mentions his. I hope I'm getting this somewhat right. I probably should have went back to say what he said, but he mentioned something about not trusting anyone blind or not liking anyone blind. Just think about if they're the ones cutting your meat in the deli. <laughs> he's like, would you trust? He's like, and that's a surrealist image right there. Blind man cutting the meat. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, the blind butcher. So I was just, it was funny. It was just when he said that, I thought, oh, no wonder he's got, maybe he didn't like dogs either. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> oh. I love that we've been talking about this movie longer than this movie has been running because we're about halfway through the film just at this point where we get to meet the Marquis of X. And the first time we see him, he's got all of these dead flies all over his face. I love it. And this is the party scene. And the party is really going to take us through pretty much the rest of the movie, other than this denouement, the venom sack, as I mentioned earlier. But this whole thing of this big party, you've got this car pulling up and these guys coming out. And there's this, I just described it as a symbol. I wasn't exactly sure what this thing was that they take out of the car, the People get out, they put the symbol back in the back seat of the car. I think it was a reliquary, which a reliquary is a, looks like a cross that stands up and it usually has like rays that come out of it. And in the center, 
there's usually a piece of flesh or clothing or something that is related to a saint. So this is part of Catholicism in which aliquaries are these things that are given adoration. They are prayed to in, in that way. So that's what I saw that as. It may be something else, but that's what it looked like to me. Makes as much sense to me as anything else. And it did feel like it had a religious symbolism to it. And yeah, it felt like rays of the sun coming out from this thing. I wasn't sure if it was that or fell off the Ark of the Covenant or what it was. This is where the hunter actually finally gets a kill or something. I don't It's like somebody finally learns how to shoot the damn gun. <laughs> I didn't connect that. Yeah. Oh, that's the best part. That's just this little shit-eating kid. There's a hunter outside. We cut to him. He's outside of the party, and there's this little kid that comes up. And this little kid's being a jokester and knocks this thing out of the guy's hand. The guy just fucking shoots him. More than that, he fucking shoots his corpse, which is fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. Again, I saw the what I said with the man kicking the violin, right? It's again, it's like, here's another character who is maybe experiencing what the man and woman in this film are experiencing. And so every little thing that pisses them off is going to come out in a ferocious violent manner kicking a dog kicking a violin and even shooting this poor kid god and you get those shots in here where we're in the ballroom and you've got these two guys drinking wine or whatever driving their wagon through the middle of the ballroom or the poor woman who comes out of the kitchen looks like a maid and she's smoking and the fire yeah just shooting out of the kitchen oh i love that the fire no one notices which again is the apathy from all of the bourgeois. And that's what I took from the flies on the face. This guy can't even notice that there's flies on his friggin' face, just like he doesn't notice the fire. And again, just no one caring or feeling for another. And when they all look at the kid's shot, they're like, oh, okay, back to the party. Nobody cares. That's how I saw that sequence, which was, again, funny and certainly audacious. That's that that kitchen sequence after the jump I want to talk about, how I see that influenced another scene that I know in another film. There's that great moment, too, where the man finally shows up at the party and he's got this dress. And I'm guessing it's the woman's dress and he is dragging it on the floor and then through trick photography, through backwards shooting, he throws the dress onto this chair and it lands perfectly there. And then we do a nice dissolve between that dress and the woman who's wearing that dress in the main part of the ballroom. We're going back and forth before he goes into the ballroom itself and sees her across the room. You can see the lust on his face. He's trying to get over there, but her mother stops him. Her mother gets her, him a drink, spills a little bit on his hand. And that's the only time where the bourgeois really react is when he stands up and smacks her in the face. Yeah. Yeah. You don't touch one of ours. Everyone else is okay. <laughs> but uh, again, I see this whole thing where they're like looking at each other. And then I think there's like a woman or something that comes over to the woman and starts talking to her. So it's like, this is the polite way in which we keep you away from each other. This isn't the force. This is, oh, it's pleasantries and conversation, all this stuff. It's like, how do we mollify you to keep you from the thing? That, how do we keep you? socialized 
amongst each other. This goes back to the scorpion, right? Like the people coming in at the scorpion as scorpions pushing out of my hole. And I saw the dress as another kink, as another fetish. It's like when you're when you're having sex, you always have these fantasies of, wouldn't it be great if you wore this? He knew she was going to be there, and here's the dress he wants her to wear. So that's how I took that. So he gets kicked out of the party because of smacking her mom, but then he just doesn't really leave. He comes back, and when he comes back, nobody says anything. There's some unpleasant looks that he's getting. There's at least one guy who's shooting daggers at him with his eyes, but they just let him go along, and that's when they end up going out into the, I guess it's like a rock garden or a topiary or something. It looks like there's a little bit of a edge maze happening here. And then so much of the rest of this film is them in this area and then going back and forth because that's also where we've got the music is starting. And you talked about the violin being kicked down the street. There's this whole thing about this looks like some sort of like a monk or a priest or something that he's really good with the violin. But then there's, I think there's four of them in the band itself. They all are dressed the same. Reminds me of those two priests that are being pulled on the, was it the back of the piano in Unshanandalu? They're there. And we keep getting close-ups of these figures in the orchestra going back and forth between them and then the conductor. And yeah, we'll definitely talk about that conductor in a bit, but we've got that amazing scene of them the man and woman sucking on each other's hands and this bird trilling on the soundtrack and then the one thing that i when i saw this the first time it was i was in a theater so i couldn't say oh i gotta rewind that when suddenly the hand is caressing her face but then you realize it doesn't have any fingers and i was like oh okay did she eat his fingers <laughs> but then later on He's got fingers again. It's kind of like how that bandage appears and reappears. I saw that as he couldn't eat because they've been separated for so long that it's now it's not working out. It's not going to feel good. It's like he's down to the fact that he's lost fingers. And maybe that goes back to the sore thumb. He's had to now masturbate himself, masturbate too much that he's lost his hand. (laughs) Could be a castration fear. They have their fingers in each other's mouths. And then the fingers aren't there. It's vagina dentata kind of thing. Oh, she's want this, but I'm afraid that she's going to take away my power. So there's th- this way in which they have to negotiate themselves outside of the context of, of what the society says. Then their own, their own mental issues. <laughs> and then right after this, I go, I know it's when Wells put of the statue, I go, Next to Quentin Tarantino, Boonwell is the king of the foot fetishists on film throughout his films. It starts here. I can't remember of, of a foot scene in Shen Andalou, but it definitely starts here. And it goes on and on through his entire work. I love that scene because it's relatable in the sense of, I don't know about you guys, but it's sometimes you're just trying to get with someone and so it's building in your head and it's the imagination is so strong that you think it's going to be the greatest sex of your life. And then when they finally have the time together, they're disappointed because, again, the oppression, it's like it's been now as a result, it has been built up in their head so much. So they at first can't even get comfortable. Their heads are hitting together. They hear the music, which stops them. 
And even when they are kissing, it's like, oh, this is a little disappointing. And so that's when, oh, look at this toe. <laughs> Maybe we'll bring this into this. And it's just, again, it's outrageous. But I think he was really getting at something at the core. It was very emotional, I felt. And just the power of the imagination of how when, particularly with sex, when it's you're waiting and waiting and finally it can be disappointing. Because it's it always the fantasy is always stronger sometimes. <laughs> Whereas if they had sex right away, then maybe it would have been the best sex ever. But it goes down to that being forced apart. Yeah, him staring at that toe, and I appreciate that he seems to be so fascinated by that toe. But then she's the one that starts trimming it. Yeah, I love that he gets called away. The uh, minister of the interior is on the phone for you, sir. You have to improvise with what's around it. And I love that she clearly masturbated and got herself off. So when he comes back, she's like, I'm tired. I just want to go to bed. Even that image of suddenly he's seeing her old. And it's, I mean, it was just like his fear of, God, I'm never going to have this woman. We're going to be, we're going to be old by the time we can be together. He's hitting at something there just in terms of relationships. It's, when you really want to be with someone, it's that fear that it's not going to happen or it won't happen under an ideal circumstance. And then before you know it, you're dead or you're at death's door. That was really a really powerful shot. I Really memorable, I felt. That call from the Minister of Interior where you have just that, this is where I was talking about the cartoon voices, because it feels very much like these are just, and I know this is strange to say, are not coming from the actors' mouths whatsoever. They just feel like they are really overdubbed on here. And you've got this voice like, you're entirely to blame. No child survived. And I'm just like, what is happening? And then we go to a black screen. We hear a gunshot and a thump. And then we see the minister and he's dead, but he's on the ceiling. He's not on the floor. Just that's a great image. Yeah, I'm wrestling with that one. It reminded me of Exorcist 3 when I forget which character it was who's suddenly crawling on the ceiling. The fact that whatever the hell this guy's job was, that he couldn't focus on it to the point because of because that he was so focused on having sex with this woman that he wasn't allowed to sleep with and now everything has just blown up and the world... <laughs> I think he was getting at something that it's like if, again, like with the scorpion, if you take them away from their spontaneity, shit gets ferocious, right? And then this, things are going to blow up. And to the point where he doesn't even care. He's like, I don't give a shit about those kids. You even see that when he hits her mother, she's like pleased by it. Or she's like, oh, wow, this is, she takes pleasure from it. I just took that as these warped reactions that we have when. You know, when if someone beats you down and beats you down and beats you down, and then you see them get beat up, it feels good. It look, which is why she's like, even like with the kids getting killed, I, she has a line about it where she's, yeah, this is just so great. It's just, it fucks people right up. He even mentions later on when they're having these kind of thought discussions, I think he says, what joy in having killed our children. This is 1929, 1930. And as we've talked about a few years later, when we get into the universal horror cycle, there's all of that residue of World War I. You know, what a joy it is in killing our children, sending these young kids to die in a trench you know, out in the West and Eastern fronts. 
that wasn't too far removed from people's minds at that point in the interwar before the second world war kicks off in another 10 years maybe that's what that comment is it's just basically we can't accept ourselves we can't accept our nature we repress it and then we just destroy all the good things that we build the buildings the children ever all of them talking to each other via their thoughts we've got that amazing shot of him with all the blood on his face and it looks like one of his eyes is really screwed up and that's just a momentary thing before we go back to him looking the way that he did before and this is right around the time where we've got the climax of the music going on and then the conductor like you said before he just stops and he holds his head like it was going to burst open or something and just wanders off and he wanders down that same path and wanders to where the couple is and when the woman sees him she's just like oh and just runs over to the conductor and starts French kissing this guy, making the man a little angry. But then he stands up and he, this is a great comedy moment. He stands up and hits his head on a potted plant. So then he starts grabbing his head and wandering back. And I thought he would go up and start conducting the music again, because it just feels like they're switching places with the whole thing of the hands on the head and walking blindly down this path. That's why I felt he was another character who clearly was also experiencing this oppression who can't then do what he wants to do or needs to do. These headaches come. And so when she kisses him, it's a little, it's like medicine just for, for now he's okay, but these headaches are going to probably come up again. And so it gets transferred over to, because he poses in the exact same way. He walks away with his hands on his head and it's been now transferred over to him. And then it gets even worse as he goes home and rips the pillow apart, throws the friggin' One of the bishops out the window. I just like, again, it's just this destruction. And from one person to the next, it's just the violence being transferred over and over again. And I can see the conductor's position as he's another one who is not just oppressed by things, but he's also the manager of the culture. So I look at him and go, he's been given position of authority, but at the same time, he still has to play the music that they want. Like, he's got to follow the score. There's a script that he has. So maybe at some point it just becomes, I'm battling between my position and myself, and that's why my head is the way it is. That's why I had to go off and I couldn't do this anymore. I was looking at conductor and classical music as being this representation of what high culture was supposed to be. What was expected as, oh, of course, if you're an educated person, if you were uh, a elite person, bourgeois, of course, you would love this stuff because it's considered the pinnacle of European music. You've got him going back to that room, tearing up that pillow, and then and there's a, I guess it's like a plow or something on the floor. He's getting angry at that before he starts to tear up the pillow, and then he goes and after he's tearing up stuff, he decides that he's going to start throwing things out the window. You mentioned he throws the bishop out the window. He throws that plow out the window. We get that very obvious miniature shot where he throws a giraffe out the window. Looks like a flaming Christmas tree. Yeah, that starts it all off. Yeah. The whole thing with the giraffe, I'm just like, okay, that's totally Dali right there. He was obsessed with giraffes. His script for the Marx Brothers was called Giraffes on Horseback Salad. There's the burning giraffe painting. 
giraffes just show up in a lot of his work. It's one of those, no offense to giraffes that are listening to this, but giraffes are ridiculous looking animals. And I think he just really got off on just how crazy these things look. It's just almost like a surrealist animal. I think that's part of it. But I also read again, this may be a masturbatory thing in that Dali had erection issues. So I think maybe the long neck of the giraffe was considered stand-in for a very well-endowed erection. I saw that as a connection to the cow in a sense, because it's here's these people took over the land and built up all these chateaus. So now these poor animals can't even be in their own habitat that they got to live in this fucking chateau. And we don't give a shit about these animals. Throw these giraffes out the window. I like that read as well. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen the producer of the day the cow had to be filmed. Guys, do we really need this? How are we going to get this cow in the room, on the bed, off the bed? That must have been, I could just see them fighting like, no, we must shoot this. And I'm glad they did because it's, love it. I love that. Of all the images from this movie, the cow on the bed and the woman sucking on the toe, those are like the two things that I remember seeing for years before I ever saw the film. The woman sucking on the toe was on the front of that screenplay or book about Lodge de War that I saw way back in 91, even before the BFI book came out. Mike, I know you said you saw this in a movie theater. Were people laughing? Or were they just, what the fuck? <laughs> or both? <laughs> well, everybody that was there was a film fan. So if not a film fanatic, and it was people driving from or flying from all over the world to come to this Nitrate Film Festival we are there for these movies. And even my friend, Jeff, who isn't into movies that much, but he goes with me to this nitrate festival, which I really love him for doing that. He was just absolutely fine with that. He was just like, yep, he's there for it. And yeah, no, what the hell was that when we left the theater, <laughs> which was nice. And plus they do a little speech before they show any movies to put it into context as well. Oh, uh, get the screen like they did in 1938. I would love to see this in a movie theater. I actually regret they showed it recently here in Toronto at a movie theater. I fucking wish I had went. I didn't realize how any, obviously any movie in a theater is going to be a much different, richer experience. But this particular, I feel like seeing this with people would be really valuable. And so hopefully, I'm sure it'll happen again. But they, I was curious what it was like to see it with an audience. Yeah, it was really good. Like I said, everybody was there for it. So it wasn't like some little old lady walked in from off the street and it's just, what is this? And no one's yelling scandal or shakis or anything. <laughs> there were no right-wing French extremists there to try to burn down the theater. The film is really in three parts, if you think about it. Is that what you think, Mike? I was saying five. The assumption that this is told like a scorpion's tail is a good way to read it. And some of the parts are smaller than others, obviously. This party sequence is probably the longest sequence of the film, but then we get to that poison sack that we'll talk about in a second. But yeah, I figure five, but I could see three. I saw it three, a scorpion, a couple, and then the last, like the Salo Jesus orgy. That's how I saw it. Yeah, I saw it more and more as three. Yeah. We are right at the title card. That talks about how the survivors are emerged and are returning to Paris. And there's a miniature of this castle up on the cliff. And then we get more of this title card. And actually, 
it's a scroll now at this point, and it talks about how 120 days earlier, these four godless scoundrels locked themselves in a this castle to indulge in bestial orgies. We are right there in Desaad territory with this. And I love how the door opens and the first person to leave is fucking Jesus Christ himself. Just this beatific has that kind of far away look in his eyes as if he must have really gotten his rocks off really well in that orgy. He had a great time, which, oh my God. But I can't bring myself to see the Pasolini. I love Pasolini, but it looks like really disturbing. I can't bring myself to say, but that's the same story, right? I take it from the same story. It's one of our favorite episodes. Or as I like to call it on our episode, children's programming. We'll make sure to link that one so people want to listen. <laughs> Apparently, Roger Ebert died without ever, he couldn't bring himself to watch it. He just thought it looked like, not that he didn't think it was going to be good, but he, I think he was afraid of it. That's how I feel like. I'm like, I can't go there. I can't. The clips I've seen look, oh, God. I was definitely afraid of it for a long time, and then I watched it, and then it, as I talked about on the episode, it reminds me of Francis Bacon painting, or there's another painter, Jerome Witkin, who does these really dark scenes, and I'm like, I don't mind going to a museum to see those paintings, but I don't want them over my couch. That's basically it. I want to each it every so often. I don't, that's not every day. No. But the thing that's really funny about the 120 Days of Sodom I actually read a large portion of it, is that it's so over the top, so ridiculous in terms of the stories that you can't help but to laugh at it. It's so ridiculous. Desaad's writing is just over the top in terms of his descriptions, even though it's like horrific things, it's just done in such a way that it's such a burlesque that it just, I don't think anyone can take it seriously. But in the hands of Pasolini and what he was trying to do is to take that idea and say, this is fascism. This is the core of what it is. In here, I think what Buñuel is doing, because that's why I asked about the three segments, is to me, with the Scorpions, you could say, okay, that is about humanity or animal nature. This is about man and woman nature. And then this is about what happens when the aristocrats, the, the bourgeois, go too far, when they become so nihilistic that nothing matters anymore, literally nothing matters, that it becomes Desad. will be that. It will be this nihilism, is really what I always use of Desad by both but and then also Pesolini. You're certainly on to something there. And you're down to like the last shot of the crucifix with the scalps. At first I was like, what the hell is that? Is that some her? I was like, what is that? And then I just, that's what, that's what people have said it is. I'm like, Wow, women's scalps on a crucifix. Jesus Christ. Literally. So yeah, so Jesus comes out. Three libertines follow him from out of this chateau or castle. And then a survivor comes out, this poor girl who is just very worse for wear. So they have to take care of her. And other than it being one of the three other libertines, it's Jesus that goes back into the castle, quote unquote, takes care of her comes out, he's missing his beard now, but he still has that same beatific look on his face. And then, yeah, we cut to that cross. And that cross, so you talked about how it's like women's scalps on there. I was also thinking of the, the hair we saw earlier with the masturbation sequence. 
Jesus's beard as well. I'm just like, okay, maybe that's up on this cross, but what a what an amazing way to end this movie with this real middle finger of Jesus being one of these libertines. I even took it one further in that maybe Bunuel was saying, okay, it's one thing to be destroyed by a bunch of libertines. It's another thing to be destroyed or taken over by the church, which Jesus would represent. That's the final absolute assault on the individual. For him, being an atheist, thank God, as he would say, that is probably the worst thing, is not so much the violence done to you by man, but the violence done to you by the church. That's a level higher. I was still wrestling with what this was, why he suddenly went to this, but what you're both saying makes a lot of sense to me. And again, just the audacity in a good way, these Bunuel and Dali to do that. Even if someone did this now, it would be, I think you'd get the same reaction, if not worse. (laughs) It's quite something. All right. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Build your collection of cinematic classics. Now available for the first time in stunning 4K Ultra HD, Academy Award winner Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon, Academy Award winner Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, and iconic James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Be sure to go to www.wb100, that's wb100.com, and pick up the 4K Classic Movie Bundle today. All right, we're back and we were talking about L'Age d'Or, and Bobby mentioned before how this is the opening salvo here from Mr. Boonwell. Of course, we had one Shen Andalou, which had a lot of stuff, but I would say that's really more Dolly and Boonwell, whereas this one feels more, I would say like 90% Boonwell and 10% Dolly, but what are your thoughts on that? I definitely see a lot of the through lines in here in terms of his later work. There is party scenes, those preclude things such as Discreet Charm, Sermon of the Angel, even some of the other films. You could look at the whole thing with Jesus with the beard, without the beard, as the Milky Way. You can see there's different things in here that come up again and again. Foot stuff, it's all over the place. There's so much foot fetish stuff. Like we talk, like I was joking about Tarantino and his love of feet. Unwell was there before and he did it in a much artier way. Tarantino did it for no reason other than that he likes <laughs> But I actually think Boonwell liked feet too. So I'm not knocking him for it. It's just that it was more subtle to me to actually notice it in Boonwell's work. I actually had to go back. I was watching it and go, okay, there's that again. There's the shoes again. There's, there's all these. But to me, a lot of the early kind of proto-social commentaries, obviously taking apart the bourgeois, the church, the clergy, the, all the way up until his last film. When you look at that obscure object of desire is all about people wrestling with sexuality, people wrestling with their attractions. How do they engage those? This was made in 1930. For the next 47 years, the man basically was making, you want to talk about auteur theory, it's in there in terms of thematics. One of the things I thought was interesting, like I said, since I learned how to read over the course of COVID, went back over my last side, and there's a couple of things in here. You were talking about Gala and Dali, and he talks about here, on, and he says how basically when Gala came into his life, just everything was over. He says, our ideas clashed to such an extent, we finally stopped collaborating on Lajdor. It was a complete metamorphosis. 
all he would talk about was Dala. He echoed every word and utterance. And you just got more and more tired of dealing with him. The thing that I like here is, so Lajador was actually made as a gift by a, by a count, a nobleman, basically, a member of the bourgeois, as a gift to his wife. And he would do this every year where he would hire an artist to make something. And typically, before this, some sculpture, paints, whatever. So he started making these films. And he was invited to this dinner where he met this guy. And he was told, okay, here's our proposal. He said, you can make a 20-minute film, have complete freedom to do whatever you want, and only one condition. Stravinsky has to write the music for it. Sorry, I replied. You can imagine me collaborating with someone who's always falling on his knees and beating his breast? That's what I was saying about Stravinsky. His reaction, totally unexpected. He goes, you're right. You and Stravinsky would never get along. Choose your composer. Make the film you want. We'll get something else for Igor. So basically, he was left to go do whatever he wants. Now, I think... To a certain extent, maybe the conductor character is also Bunuel poking at Stravinsky as well. It's interesting that you say that, Rob, because when I was talking way back at the beginning of this episode, when I read about Lodge d'Or causing a riot, the other piece of art that I thought of was the Rite of Spring and how that also caused a riot. So that's funny that they almost worked together, at least two, two very controversial figures. Yeah, and... Stravinsky in that period was like the punk. He was like the rock star. He was this guy who was taking classical music in a direction that the people who thought, oh, you can't do that. He was just taking it in directions. I mean, go listen to The Rite of Spring, which was actually a ballet as well. One of my favorites is The Firebirds, amazing piece of modern classical music. So it's interesting to me like how... Like I said, Stravinsky is mixed up in this. And I go, maybe he's making fun of Stravinsky in some way with the conductor. The other thing here, it says, in its final version, the film ran about an hour, much longer than Shen Andalou. Dali gave me several ideas. One of them that found its way into the film was a man with a rock on his head walking through a public garden. He pauses at a statue that also has a rock on its head. Oh, yes. I forgot about that. Looks like an American movie, he told me, was Dali's idea of a compliment. (laughs) undoubtedly from a technical point of view that it was more put together he later says his intentions in writing the screenplay were to expose the shameful machinations of contemporary society for me the film was about passion an irresistible force that thrust two people together and about the impossibility of ever becoming one oh yeah after they they made the film it said apparently the church threatened to excommunicate him this was the aristocrat who gave money mother had to go to Rome to negotiate with the Pope. <laughs> like Shen, Lajador opened at Studio 28, where it played to packed houses for six days. And then the right-wing press, however, attacked the theater in full battle dress, lacerating paintings, surrealist exhibit in the foyer, smashing chairs, the annuals of Paris history. The episode was known as the Lajador Scandal. A week later, police chief Shep closed the theater. The film was censored. It remained so for 50 years. So this book was written and released in 1982 or 3. It was only seen in private screenings and in cinematechs, and then eventually opened in New York in 1980 and in Paris in 1981. He said that he would go back and see this nobleman from time to time when he was in Paris. He said, he never blamed me for any of the trouble of the film. In fact, he was actually delighted the realist received, the realist received it so enthusiastically. I remember one of the parties in 1933, where all the artists were invited, were told to do whatever they wanted, fearing trouble, Dali 
and another friend declined the invitation. So he was just saying that, just love the fact that the guy you paid for it was like, could have got excommunicated from the church. And that really wasn't, he's like, eh, it's fine. Like you pissed off about what happened. It happens. Documentary, I saw you mentioning that people didn't see this for like 40, 50 years. That they showed on the documentary, maybe you guys saw it, but some of the people who worked on it, they brought them to see it. And it was so fascinating to see them watching it after 50 years for the first time because they literally cut from the movie to them just watching it, which must have been like surreal <laughs> in a sense to now, like they probably never thought they'd ever see it again and how they commented on to them how well it still stood up. So it's an interesting documentary that you could find on YouTube. And I don't know if Bunuel actually ever saw the film again because he said in the book, which for those who don't know, the book was basically, it was written by Jean-Claude Carrier, his collaborator, but he didn't take credit. He basically just interviewed Bunuel and then wrote it. But it said in, in there, in that section on Lush Door, that basically he, he has memories of it, he has memories of making it, but he's like, I haven't seen it since the premiere. And so in this book came out right around the time he died. So there's part of me that thinks maybe he never saw it again after it came out and then was banned. One of the things that I think is funny when we talk about also, again, influence on Boonwell is in Diary of a Chambermaid, which he made in 63, 64, I believe, that the final scene, because this takes place in the 20s, right around the time, the 20s and 30s, right around the time of Lash Door, is the final scene or the fascist marching and he's got this guy who's screaming, Viva Ship, Viva Ship, over and over again, which is the name of the police commander who ultimately banned Lodge Door. So to me, I think that's putting well, like having fun and giving the finger to the folks who, who censored him most of many years ago. That was such a great film. Also, I just saw it and loved it. That's a film you got to go back again and again because it's there, there's so much going on. It's a tough watch also. But I was also thinking about beyond influence of, you can trace back to this film, everything that kind of comes after for him is the influence of this film onto other pieces of film that we may know. And the first one that kind of stuck out to me is the fingers and the finger sucking scene feels like John Waters toe sucking scene in Pink Flamingos. Oh God. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but I could, uh, no, I haven't seen that one. Oh, you were in for a treat, my friend. He's another guy I, I don't know very well. But it just reminds me of that same kind of something that's not typically sexual being sexualized in that way. The other thing that I was thinking of is that scene with the kitchen, with the fire, it's almost beat for beat the same as in Brazil, where he goes to have lunch with his mother. And then boom, the bomb goes off and the kitchen doors fly open with the big blast of fire. And then it's like, oh, everything's fine. Keep eating it. We'll clean that up. So to me, it almost feels exactly the same staging. Like it could even be shot for shot against each other because the framing really reminded me of that blast of fire out the kitchen. I feel like we are probably missing so much of the context of this movie from it being what, 93 years old, how he talked about the whole Majorcan thing. Terry Jones, who did a whole thing, Canterbury Tales. And he said, Canterbury Tales are fucking hilarious. The problem is, 
most of us don't know what the hell the references are to these days. So it's not funny to us. They thought they were a scream. For us, being able to get as much as we can and then also having a historical thing. When I think about movies like this, when we talk about historical references or the jokes or whatever, it's almost like back in the day you were talking about watching the version of Vishina and the Loop on MTV. One of the things I always liked because I was a fucking nerd was pop-up video over on VH1. I always thought it was interesting. Put the little things in, point at various things, but annotate it look at things it almost feels like you would need something like that for this the only connection between these two was that Budwell edited a version of this film when he worked at alma is i was thinking about the triumph of will i own a copy of triumph of will that is copy that was fundraiser for the holocaust in the u.s and there is a historian commentary track and there's also sub there's like a subtitle I think that can come up that will point to you as to who certain people are. Because if you're not that hip to understanding who all of these guys in the fucking Third Reich are and what their positions were and why they fucking matter, all you know is Hitler. You're like, hey, there's Hitler and there's Kuring and there's fucking Himmler. Yeah, like you might know like the top five. And so him going, okay, this guy is, this is why he matters. And this is, when he's talking about this, he's talking about this historical. So there's all of these things that just an average person watching it just may not get. And so maybe what would be good, sadly, like I said, I watched this on YouTube and I know that I used to have a version that I think Kino put out maybe 20 years ago on DVD. And to be honest, the YouTube version didn't look much better than the Kino version is I would love to see them take that copy. I'm willing to bet maybe that's almost copy or something that you saw at the Nitrate Festival. And to have someone really transfer this and clean it up, I know there's no money in it because it's, there isn't, but it would be great if somebody could do a really nice version, really clean it up, beautiful scan, and to have someone do that context to really give us an understanding a little bit more in it. At the same time, I do think that Bunuel a lot of times was very much against explaining his own work. He hated that. He was like, don't ask me what it's about. I you figure it out. It's the eye of the duck. The Not to put anybody down, but the commentary track for this off of that Kino disc, it only runs approximately 26 minutes. It's not the first 26 minutes either. He just dips in and out throughout this whole thing. And you're just like, this movie's only 60 some minutes long. He does a good job with what he says, but it's just, no, I want to talk the whole time. Like, I feel like I would get fired if I did a commentary track for an hour-long movie and only handed in 26 minutes. That just doesn't work. Give me the stuff that we've talked about. Give me, you know, his future stuff, how this influenced things later. Give me more of that relationship with Dali and Gala. Give me more of, oh, this is Max Ernst, and this is this person, and this is this person, and how they all relate. We get a little bit of that story of is, but we don't really even get the whole thing of, reaction to it. As I was watching it again yesterday and listening to the commentary, I'm like, is he going to talk about the riots? Is he going to talk about the reception of this film? He never does. Just kind of ends. Go. Okay. There's a place, not only just for a film historian, but also for historian art movements and surrealism. Because one of the things that you read about when you talk about this film is the shift where surrealism went from the internal to the external. There was a lot of debate on that. There was a lot of splintering. 
in the late 20s and into the 30s, where there was a lot of people who, I think this is, give you a similar movement that I know a decent amount about from my own research is like punk rock, where there were those who go, no, punk is your own thing. It's for you. Fuck the establishment. Fuck the order. Fuck everything. Who cares about that? We're not engaging that. This is just about me and my own thing. And then there were those that go, no, it's about this and then being political. It's about this to fix that out there. So there were these splinterings within surrealism where there were those who were like, no, we need to maintain what the purity of the surreal surrealist movement was. And then there were those that said, no, we need it because we're seeing the rise of fascism. We're seeing authoritarianism. We're seeing all of these things. And that those comments on the rich and the powerful and the church and all of these things can be the way to wake people up so that we don't go down these horrible paths, which eventually they did, which eventually led to, if you read my last side, when well talks about the death of Lorca and Lorca, it was Lorca, Dali and Buñuel who were all in school together. And Lorca was killed by the fascists in Spain when Franco came. So that loss for him was so profound. I don't think it plays into his work so much, but it definitely plays into his life in that he lost this great friend of his who was an amazing poet and artist. And there's a lot of conjecture as to why he was killed. Was he killed just because he was an artist and a poet? Was he killed because he was gay? Was it some combination of the two? That's another aspect of when I read Quinwell's book that I go for a guy who was so evolved and fuck you to the system, he still couldn't accept that Lorca was gay. It bothered him. So there was all of this in there too. So interesting. Like I say, I look at that movement and say, I don't think it kept, it obviously didn't keep Europe from becoming a fascist takeover, but I think it definitely poked the bear a bit, got some people to think and had an influence. He said something in this documentary I saw, which was interesting, was that he didn't care that he had artistic success. Like he wanted these, his work and Dali and these people to change the world. And so he saw them, he saw it as a failure. He could care less that people like the movies, which again is really interesting. Where we live in a world where people mostly, myself and that, care about succeeding in their own lives. And here's a guy who had the success, but it's like, he didn't care. It wasn't enough. It's not, he didn't have the value that he wanted, which was to change the world with these films. I was pretty impressed by, pretty admirable, I felt. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll play preview for next week's show. In my lifetime, I have recorded some 60 cases demonstrating the singular gift of my friend Sherlock Holmes. But there were other adventures which, for reasons of discretion, I have decided to withhold from the public until this much later date. They involve matters of a delicate and sometimes scandalous nature, as will shortly become apparent. Why did you bring her here? I found this in her hand. 221B Baker Street. Each one of you is Sherlock Holmes. Holmes, we've never had a case like this. We don't know who the woman is. We don't know what the problem is. Don't you find that challenging? Why? As you like to put it in your chronicles, the game is afoot. There's more to this case than meets the eye. 
come to my attention that you are interested in the whereabouts of a certain engineer. When I said drop this case, it was not merely a suggestion. Kiwi from Loch Ness. Holmes, I swear to you, I saw it as clear as anything. Watson, are you quiet, That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which kicks off a whole month of discussions all about Sherlock Holmes's career via 70s incarnations of the Master Sleuth. Till then, I want to thank my co-host, Rob and Robert. So, Rob, what is the latest with you, sir? Just finishing up my third degree in three years. Master's in nonprofit administration. It should be done in August. After that, I don't know. But it is my understanding that... Beyond this episode, you may be hearing me speak again about movies very soon on the show. And I always love coming on and hanging out with you, of course, Mike, and whomever, whoever you have as a guest co-host, which is great. So it's, I think this is the first time I've been on with Robert, so it was a lot of fun. And Robert, how about yourself? I have my YouTube channel, which keeps me busy on my exploration of film. So if people want to check out the vlogcast i suppose or vodcast i suppose you call it if it's a video it's www.youtube.com slash robert bellissimo at the movies and i'm also on twitter at rb at the movies a little different and instagram and facebook is the same as the youtube channel at robert bellissimo at the movies so i do about six episodes a month with guests where we just do deep dive explorations similar to to Mike, and just exploring storytelling on film in general is the focus of the podcast, as well as interviews with people who work in film and television and theater. Yeah, so I'm also an actor and acting teacher, and I teach virtually still, even in the what post-pandemic world. So if you're looking for a class, you could go to my website, rbelissimo.ca. So this has been a treat. This has been great. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me on. And Mike, Rob, it was nice to meet you. I learned a lot and got to explore such a fantastic filmmaker. So thanks for having me. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.